0: on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Real love is calling, listen. Truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for with every
1: sunrise. But you're going to notice in this section here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus wrestles with His will versus the Father's will. This is very challenging for us because here Jesus is fully God, yet He's fully man. He's God in flesh, and yet He tells us that He has a will. And His will is that if there's some other way to accomplish salvation other than the suffering that is before Him, other than the cross, He wishes it could happen that way. But He's going to end up saying here a few times, not my will, but Thy will be done, Father.
0: Bible says that Jesus was fully man and fully God at the same time. But sometimes we can forget that he was a man, just like us, with feelings. In these verses, Jesus really didn't want to go through dying on the cross, but as he wrestled with those feelings and prayed to God, Jesus chose to follow God's will and go to the cross. In today's message, Pastor Gary will encourage you to always follow Jesus' example and accept God's will instead of your own desires. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So as we started
1: last week into chapter 26, this is heading into the final week of Jesus' life, just before he is crucified. In chapter 26, uh, we noted that there was the plot against Jesus, drummed up by the chief priests and the elders of the people, including the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas at the time. Uh, Judas agrees to betray Jesus in this chapter for 30 pieces of silver, the equivalent of about four months' wages. Uh, the Lord has his last supper, what is commonly referred to as the last supper, or the Lord's supper with his disciples. He breaks bread with them for the Passover feast for one last time before he is crucified in this chapter. And uh, just before they leave the upper room where they have been having this Passover meal together, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows in the morning. Uh, to which Peter emphatically says, no, 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 I never will. He uses the word never a couple of times. He gets more emphatic as the conversation goes along. And even though he's the one who speaks the most, it tells us there in chapter 26, verse 35, that all the other disciples said the same. So they all thought too highly of themselves. I once uh, remember Pastor Chuck Smith saying, Oh, the folly of vows that are predicated upon our flesh. You know, here's Peter making this fleshly promise. Uh, I never will. I'm never going to abandon you. I'll never betray you. I will die for you. All these other losers, they might do that, but not me. They might deny you, but certainly I will not. And uh, oh, the folly of vows that are made predicated upon our Flesh. Well, they leave the upper room here in the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to find lodging on the Mount of Olives at a particular garden called Gethsemane. And that's where we left off here at, chapter, at uh, verse 36 of Matthew 26. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, remember, as the city of Jerusalem would swell with worshipers as they would come there for certain feasts, this is one of them. The Passover feast Uh, Josephus the historian records that there were as many as 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed in the first century during Passover. One lamb represented 10 males in a family plus women and children. So one for 10 at the very least means that there were two and a half million people in Jerusalem at this particular time during the Passover feast. Well, where do you put two and a half million or so people up for the night? They would just find lodging wherever they could. If they knew friends in the vicinity of Jerusalem, if they traveled a great distance and they knew friends in the city of Jerusalem, they would stay at a friend's house. But if you don't know anybody, you're just going to be sleeping under the stars. You're going to be sleeping under a tree. You're going to be finding someplace in the streets to find lodging. For Jesus and his disciples, sometimes it was in Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And sometimes, and on this occasion, we'll see here, just the evening before his crucifixion, they will find lodging in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we'll notice this here in verse thirty-six. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, for you note takers, the word Gethsemane is from two Hebrew words, get Shemen. Get Shemen. we transliterate it Gethsemane, but it really translates oil press. Uh, Gat uh, translates press and Shemen is the Hebrew word for oil. So Gethsemane literally in Hebrew means oil press. And this is located on the Mount of Olives. And what it tells us is that at this location, at this particular location, along this mountain range of olive trees was an olive press, an oil press. Where they would harvest the olives, they would put them in this press, and then they would squeeze the press and produce olive oil. Uh, we were there just a couple of months ago. Just a small section that is still preserved there on the Mount of Olives. But some of these trees, like this one, for example, dates back two thousand years. An olive tree never really dies. It's a very interesting tree. You can cut it down, and it will continually sprout. Unless you uproot it, it will forever grow. Dates back to the time of Jesus. That the stump grows larger and larger, but then you notice these relatively younger shoots that come off of the olive tree, which is why in the the Old Testament, Jesus was referred to as uh, the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And it's this picture of an olive tree that never really dies. There's this per- perpetual lineage with the descendants of David where Jesus, the Messiah, would be a descendant of his lineage, much like an olive tree that never dies. It just sprouts a new branch. Uh, and so, uh, this is that particular garden, the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gatshemen, where olive, uh, olives were pressed and oil was made. Now, it is interesting to note that this is going to be the place of excruciating pressing for Jesus. That, you know, it's, it's almost a play on words here. This is that location where Gethsemane means oil press, and this is going to be this place where Jesus prays a few hours before he's going to be arrested and then ultimately crucified within the same day. And it'll be here that he, that he is under excruciating suffering and the intense agony during this prayer time. And out of this will be produced this resolute Savior who comes through the other end of prayer with a bold determination that he's going to go to the cross. But you're going to notice in this section here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus wrestles with His will versus the Father's will. This is very challenging for us because here Jesus is fully God, yet He's fully man. He's God in flesh, and yet He tells us that He has a will. And His will is that if there's some other way to accomplish salvation other than the suffering that is before Him, other than the cross, He wishes it could happen that way. But He's going to end up saying here a few times, not my will, but Thy will be done, Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. This is that garden. So I want you to picture this. They finished the the Passover meal. They have finished this last supper, if you will. Jesus has uh, expanded their understanding of the Passover as a memorial unto him, as what we continue to practice as communion or the Lord's Supper. And uh, then they go out to the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane, where they will spend the night. This is now uh, late into the evening. And uh, Jesus takes his disciples to this place, Gethsemane, and he says to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So we have Peter and we have the two sons of Zebedee. Two sons of Zebedee are James and John. They were brothers. They were both fishermen from the region of Galilee. Jesus had his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. But then within those 12, he had an inner circle of three. It isn't as if Jesus is showing favoritism, but there were three that he was closer to in some ways and that he entrusted some more revelation to than he did the others. When he went on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took Peter, James, and John. Uh, When he went in to to raise one girl from the dead, he took in Peter, James, and John, and the others stayed out. And here he's going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, he's got his. Well, Judas is missing from the scene at this point, so he has 11. He's going to say to eight of them, you stay over here. And he's going to take three of them, and he's going to say, Peter, James, and John, you come a little bit further with me. We're going to go over, and we're going to pray. And so verse 38, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch." with me. Now, again, just for those of you who like to take notes about this kind of thing, the, the word to keep watch is the Greek word Gregorio. Gregorio, and it literally means to be vigilant. And that word is going to come up again in the text. So just kind of keep that in mind. He's calling them, and there's some principle in here for us. He's calling us as well to be vigilant. And what about? Well, keep reading. Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup, referring to the cup of suffering, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Isn't that typical? Have you ever tried to pray late at night and you got about this far? Dear Lord. <clears throat> You're sawn wood, you wake up the next morning, you don't even remember what you prayed about, because you didn't, you fell asleep. So, I mean, here are these guys, they've had a long day, they've, you know, dinner's setting in, tryptophan, or whatever that is that's happening. They don't have turkey, but uh, anyhow, uh, they're, they're, all, they're all ready for bedtime. But Jesus is in this agonist moment here, and he says, Could you men not keep watch? Here's that phrase again, Gregorio. Could you not keep watch? Be vigilant with me for one hour. He asked Peter, watch, there's the word again, Gregorio, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body, King James says, the flesh is weak. Underline that verse. We'll come back to it in a minute. And he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now let's back up here and take a look at what, what is going on in this text. Uh, he Obviously, Jesus is wishing and wanting his, uh, particularly Peter, James, and John, to keep watch with him and pray that they would be vigilant. This is an hour that they have no clue what is about to happen. I mean, they should have some idea because Jesus has been telling them plainly along the way over the last three and a half years, particularly here at the Last Supper. He tells them plainly, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of a sinful men. I'm going to be crucified. The third day, I'm going to rise again. They should be guarded. They're not guarded. They are doing what comes naturally. They just want to sleep. Three times Jesus keeps going to them, and I think he's, he's not only urging them to watch and pray with him, but he's trying to find some encouragement from fellow brothers uh, to to join him in this hour, and he and he thus is hoping that they would be some source of comfort and strength along with him to seek God and to pray and to be vigilant because of what is at hand. And each time he goes away and he finds him sleeping, and he comes back and he prays himself. Each time he goes away, he finds him sleeping, he comes back and he prays himself. And on one occasion when he goes to them and he's challenging them, he says this again. It's in verse 41. He says, Watch and pray. Gregorio, be vigilant and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. There are really two things here from this whole scene in the Garden of Gethsemane that I take away whenever I read this passage. One is this. Jesus was always determined to defer to the will of the Father. And so should we. You and I have a will. We were created with free will. And there will be times when you have to make a decision. Is it going to be your will or God's will? Is it going to be your way or Yahweh? You know what I'm saying? It's either going to be your way or God's way, Yahweh. And we have to sometimes make conscious decisions. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 is part of what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. He said, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Some of you might say, I'm not always sure I know what God's will is. I know. Sometimes we don't until kind of after the fact, and then we can kind of get a better perspective after some time has passed, and we can look back and we can see where God was willing and weighing and moving in our lives. But in order to discern God's will, we have to know His Word, we have to pray, we have to seek His face. Sometimes God will use the confirmation of other people to confirm what He's been showing us. And understanding and discerning the will of God takes a lot of time with the Lord and prayer to really understand what, God's, what God wants. But regardless of whether you know clearly what His will is or not, in general, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it's okay sometimes to simply pray when you don't know what God's will is, Father, may your will be done in my life. I don't know all that that entails. I'm not sure I understand what all that might mean. I can't see into the future, but you can, and you know all things, and I defer to you, and I just want your will to be done. And then you have to be courageous enough to accept whatever his will is. Don't throw a fit like a little child who doesn't get candy whenever they beg and want and plead. Because there's going to be sometimes that God says yes to you, there's going to be sometimes God says not now, and there's going to be sometimes he says no. Now, the yes answers are always the best. Whenever God says yes, that's praise God and amen, and you come into church and you're singing louder and you're waving your hands and washing windows, you know, doing the whole thing, and you're all caught up in praise. When God says not yet, you're just, you know, your hand's a little lower, and when he says no, you're just kind of pouty. That's how our flesh works. But Jesus deferred to the will of the Father. Always. And he comes out resolute on the end of this, where he goes back to his sleeping disciples and says, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I'm ready to face this. Now, I'm sure he wasn't, you know, all happy about being crucified. Of course, it's not that kind of emotion. It's not this denial like, you know, I pretend like I'm not going to the cross. I pretend like I'm not going to the cross. I pretend like I'm not going to the All is great. It's not like that. It's just basically this this. He is resolved to do the will of the Father, and in that he has courage to go to the cross because he knows that God's will needs to be done, and he submits to the will of the Father. And may we always take Jesus as our example and defer to the will of God. To defer to the will of God. The second thing I see important in this story is this. May we always do battle with our flesh that is constantly in conflict with our spirit. Jesus says there in verse 41, watch and pray, be vigilant and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says to his disciples something that we should understand about ourselves. There's going to be a lot of times that your spirit is willing to do great and wonderful things for God, but it's our flesh that gets in the way. It's our flesh that gets in the way. And to whatever degree our flesh gets in the way, it can be very destructive. It can be very destructive. At the time when kings went out to war, David hung back at his palace, and he gazes across the rooftop, and he sees a woman bathing on the rooftop, which was customary because the roof was an extension of homes back in those days. And you'd have basins to catch the rainwater. And here was Bathsheba bathing in in, in a tub of some kind on the roof of her home, and David sees her. Now, if his spirit had been more in charge... He would have seen and looked away, but his flesh became dominant, and he saw her, and he lusted for her, and he sent for her, and he slept with her, and they conceived a child, and that child died, and the agony of all of that was because of his own unbridled flesh. You look at story after story. It's the life of Samson, a life that the Bible describes as a man who physically was very strong but morally was very weak. His flesh got the best of him. Solomon. Solomon, the son of King David. Here he is king. The Bible says the wisest man on the planet at the time. But he accumulates 700 wives and 300 concubines. Is that the flesh? That's the flesh. That's a lot of flesh. (laughs) That's a thousand mothers-in-law. Do you realize that? That's a lot of shoes, and you don't have any closet space with that deal. I'm telling you as a man, no siree. That's the flesh. And the destruction that happens when our flesh goes uncontrolled, rather than the spirit reigning. We see the flesh in this story. Jesus' disciples abandoned him. They all deserted him and fled. This chapter is going to tell us. Why? Because they're flesh. They were afraid. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. Why? His flesh. He was greedy, proud. Flesh will raise its ugly head in a variety of ways. It can be jealousy. It can be lust. It can be anger. It can be fear. We have to be men and women who pray and ask the Lord, Lord, my spirit is willing, but right now my flesh is weak. Strengthen me. Strengthen me that I would be vigilant, that I would be prayerful, so that my flesh will not get the best of me. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we have to recognize the weakness of our flesh and avoid those things that will feed our flesh and introduce ourselves and be surrounded by those things that build us up in our spirit, which is why it's important to get in the Word and, and read and pray, Because those things will feed our spirit. But there's a lot of things in this world that will naturally feed our flesh. And that's why Paul would say in Galatians 5.16, So I say, live by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. But the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. So when you look at this story of Gethsemane, look at how resolute Jesus was, recognize that we are also called to defer to the will of the Father in whatever situation we find ourselves, and we should always be seeking the Lord so that our spirit can be strengthened and our flesh can be starved. He says to the disciples after he prays, there again, verse 45, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So he obviously sees... Judas uh, coming from a distance now, and it says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. This is a mob, folks. This is a mob that's coming after Jesus to arrest him. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 3, it says a band of men. Matthew says a large crowd, but the word band of men in the original language is referring to a cohort. A Roman cohort was 600 soldiers. This is not just 30 or 40 people. I know the movies portray that, even even as in many ways as, as very accurate as The Passion of the Christ was, if you ever saw that movie. You know, it doesn't show hundreds of people there. It shows a band of 30 or so people, and they come like a mob. I want you to picture hundreds of people who were coming here. This is probably a combination of Roman guards and the temple guard. There was a whole different band of military officers that served the temple who were Jewish and under the uh, control of the chief priest and the high priest. But then there were also Roman soldiers who were positioned there at the Antonio Fortress, particularly during feast times, who were under the Roman government. And so we don't know if this was exclusively the temple guard, or this was the Roman cohort, or this is a combination. But a large band, John 18.3 says, a band of men, particularly meaning a cohort, I want you to picture... Several hundred people armed with swords and clubs, middle of the night, so probably torches as well, even though it doesn't specifically say this, they're coming to arrest Jesus.
0: Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45 as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions, to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. And you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew. And we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul
1: That you've got no place to go But still you know still you know You're not